Well hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're continuing the book The Taking of the Gry by John Macefield. This is part four of the reading and we're on chapter four. And if you haven't already please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week or of course the Mariner YouTube channel where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. The Taking of the Gry, Part 4 I had better describe to you the harbour. It is a big lake or enclosure of water, three miles long by a mile broad. The northern end, two miles long, is the outer anchorage, used solely by merchant ships. The southern end, one mile long, is the naval anchorage. The two anchorages communicate but are fenced from each other for the most part by a big mole. Both are shut from the sea by a reef, which the old dictator topped with a great sea embankment of masonry, so that the easterly and northeasterly gales which set in with great violence formerly through the gaps in the reef are now checked. For beauty, few things can compare with a busy tropical port. In those days, just before the war, a good many sailing vessels were still in use, mostly coasting schooners and Icuna fishers, and these, moving about with their coloured sails, gave great life to the scene. There were also a few fine sailing ships waiting there for sugar, and these, of course, took my attention. Near them I perceived an old friend whom I had not expected to see so far from home. There was no doubt whatever about her. She was the famous English tug, the Tipton Slasher, lying at anchor with steam up. I knew her well, and had often been on board her. As it happened too, she had been the tug that had towed us to sea on my first voyage in the ship, the Shining Branch, Liverpool to San Francisco. Ha! The old slasher, I thought. I wonder what brings her here. The mate of one of the sugar barks was standing near me. I asked him, what brings the slasher here? Uh, she was sold to a monte firm, he said, which bust. She came in with a tow a day or two past, and is for sale. She had a broom as her masthead this morning, to show it, but uh, it isn't there now, so perhaps she'd been sold. She's a fine tug, I said. She's in need of an underwater scrape, he said. That Monte firm has let her all go to hell, the way these bardos do. At the inner end of the merchant shipping harbour, nearly two miles from the sea entrance and very close to the naval harbour, is a stretch or reach known to sailors by various nicknames. The Condemned Cell, the Fallen Women's Home, the Rogue's Walk, or the Moab. In this rogue's walk, the ships which had come down in the world were impounded. There you would see the ships laid up for any reason, the ships in the receiver's hands, their owners being bankrupt, the ships caught smuggling or purling within the limits, the ships which couldn't pay their dues or were waiting to be sold. There were usually two or three there. My boatman said at once that the Gry was in the rogue's walk. Already the ship had become a place of pilgrimage, when we came to the rogue's walk, a dozen little boats, full of sightseers, were lying near her, with their people gawping at her. There were three ships in the walk at the time, the Van Horn, a big black American steamer up for sale, the Laramie, a very old American ship, once famous, I believe, as a corvette in the Civil War there, and now a pathetic old croc waiting for the knackers to break her up, and my sea rogue, the Gry, nearest to the naval harbour. My little boat, which was a gay little harbour craft with a bright green body and a sail of blue and white stripes, came up under the sterns of these three. All three were moored to boys' head and stern, with their bows pointing to the outer reef. A couple of dingy, weary-looking boatmen were in charge of the Van Horn. 
The Laramie was deserted. The shoreboats hung off the cry, which had some life about her. I passed under her stern and had a good look at her, and seemed to remember having seen her somewhere before. She was a ship of an old pattern, of about 3,500 tons, built with the bold sheer and clipper bow of a sailing ship. She had a small to-gallant forecastle, a short poop and a big midship section, all three painted white. Her hull and smoke stack were green, rather in need of repainting. She had the usual short masts, mast and topmast in one piece, one in each well, between the midship house and the superstructures. She had derricks footing to the mast coats, all bowsed and topped well home to the hounds. I had the feeling that she had once been fast and had always been wet. She had once carried passengers, no doubt. She had a big skylight abaft her smokestack, which could only serve as light to a saloon. I noticed that her chart room abaft the bridge was large, probably all her officers berthed there. As I pulled under her stern to get to the starboard side, I saw the words, Gry, Montevideo, embossed on her counter. On the starboard side, she was a different ship. She had an accommodation ladder rigged there, with a man-of-war, four-oar gig lying at the foot of it. A man-of-war coxswain was in her stern sheet, sponging off the gratings. A naval messenger stood with a naval lieutenant at the ladder head, taking the morning air. So they put a guard on her, I said to my boatman. Yes, sir, he said. She must have a guard, being full of things that may explode. As we pulled forward along her side, I saw that some man-of-war ratings in undress uniform were slowly going over her forward paintwork with scrubbers. I concluded she would therefore have a working party as well as a gig's crew on board, all in charge of the lieutenant. Any ship and way of carrying on will interest a sailor. I had not much a chance of seeing the Santa Barbara Navy at work, so I looked at these fellows and concluded that the lieutenant was a young poop ornament and that the men were slacking. If that is a fair sample of your style, I thought, you better keep pace with Santa Anna, for the Santa Anna men jump at the word and will shoot the whites out of your eyes before you will know there's a war. I pulled away from her and then told the boatman to lie on his oars while I had another look. Once again I had the feeling that I had seen her before. This time it was a certainty, though I could not tell where. I looked at her and then turned over in my mind the many harbours full of ships through which I had passed. I knew from memory some hundreds of ships, of course, that I could put a name and a shape to. I had certainly not heard the name Gry before, yet I was sure that I had seen her pull round her bows. I said, I want to see her forward. He pulled a few quick strokes and brought me to her starboard bow. As I looked up, I saw that her clipper bow ended in a white prancing horse, above which a short spike bowsprit fitted to carry off the shear and finish the effect of the mast rake. A white horse, I thought, the gypsy gry after all, and on the instant there came a vivid memory of when I had seen the ship before. It had been in the Mersey two or three years before. I had been on the landing stage at a midday time of high water when the river was full of moving shipping. It was a sunny morning and I had been watching a big freighter with an enormous deckload of scantlings coming up the river with a list. I had been thinking how lucky she was to have brought any of the deckload home with a list on her of that sort. As I watched her, this green gry had slipped quickly past her, outward bound. I had just caught the white flash of the gry upon her bows and had wondered what it was since so few steamers have anything like a figurehead. Now as I looked, that scene came back so vividly the stage, the busy ferries, the gulls hovering above the river, hardly changing their slant yet lying on the air, and the big ships passing and hooting. Of course that's where I saw her, I said to myself. Something made me wish to have a look at the white gry from before all, 
so I pulled right forward and looked up. The gry was a half-length, reared up rampant with open mouth and flying mane. As I paused there, looking, one of the naval ratings nipped down from the knight's head onto the tailboards and paid out, over the bows, a southwester secured to a length of spun yarn. Englishman, he called to me in a low voice. You bring vino? Put vino in de hat. Me give one dollar. No, hey, I said. No got vino. You got brandy? Whiskey? he asked. No, hey, I said. Nada. You bring eight bells tonight, he asked. We give lots of dollars. Nada, I said, and pulled away, and so off towards the mole again, wondering at the slackness of the lieutenant that allowed a shore boat to get under the bows in daylight, and then let one of his crew traffic for alcohol within twenty yards of him. If I were your admiral, young man, I thought, I would skin your uniform right off you before this next eight bells. As I slipped slowly along the line of the breakwater, which shuts off the naval from the merchant harbour, I was aware that a good deal was being done in the naval harbour. Winches were rattling, and from the columns of smoke rising in the air, I surmised that ships were getting up steam. As I slipped along, I noticed a man standing on the top of the breakwater, staring into the naval harbour. At my first glance, I thought that he was only one of the naval sentries, but at a second glance, I knew, somehow, that it was Tom, and that he was there as a spy. My heart almost stood still as I stared. He was in mufti, staring through binoculars at the ships of war. It was Tom, without any question, not dead, but at Puno. I saw a naval sentry come out of his box, 300 yards down the mole, near the city. He shouted and signed to Tom to get out of that. Tom was in no great hurry. He put away his glasses, slipped down a rope ladder into a boat that waited there for him, then disengaged his ladder with a brisk twitch, shoved off and at once settled with his boatman to sail back to the stairs. He had not noticed me and led my boat by 30 yards. I told my boatman to follow the boat ahead, which he did, till presently we were alongside. Hello, Tom, I said. Hello yourself, he said. I've been looking for you. We talked no more till we reached the stairs, but I took a good look at him and saw that he had aged ten years since I last saw him. He had the war look, which was frequent enough in 1914, though rare later, to men becoming used to horrors. His companion, who wore a suit of serges, was plainly another naval officer, one of the quiet, preparing kind that works on a staff ashore. When our boats reached the stairs, we hopped out and shook hands. We can't talk here, he said. Come on to my lodgings. We thrust through the company that always collects at the stairheads. I've been mourning you as dead, I said. I thought you'd been taken in the O'Duffy. Some of the Tiffies warned us, he answered. We were out of her when they took her. You've been through a good deal, I said, by your look. I was in the morrow, he said. What happened? As she hit a mine, we lost about fifty men, but it was worth it. I've only seen the papers here, I said. They aren't friendly, and yet it seemed to me to be your day. We did what we meant to do. We put the O'Duffy out of action and took the storeship, he answered. But that is nothing. This matter of the Gry is the very devil. You've seen about the Gry, that she has been seized with rifle ammunition for us. Yes, and I've seen the Gry. When we're undercover, we'll talk about it, he said. In the meantime, just keep your eyes quietly skinned to see that we aren't being followed. We'll test it by one or two casts back, if you don't mind. We made one or two casts back. As far as we could make out, no one was following us. Presently, we were in a deserted square where a fountain tossed water into a goldfish pond. In the lonely square, in the shelter of the noise of the water, I asked how he had come to Santa Barbara. By air and a quick car this early morning, he said, but come on, time's precious. Besides, I'm known here and it would be well if I were not seen. 
He led the way out of the square into a street and thence down a narrow, dark lane labelled the Street of the Duke of Rivas, who was a poet. The lane was too narrow for a carriage. It looked somehow sinister. Tom stopped at number 13, which is not a reassuring number. Also, I did not like the look of the house, which was at a bend in the lane and all shuttered closed, with a black door of old wood. Tom opened with a latch key and asked me into a dark passage which became like night when the door closed. He turned on a light. I saw white walls with a mirror, coconut matting on a stone floor, and a stair winding up. Come up, said Tom. I'll lead the way. He led me up to a room on the floor above, wound back the jalousies so that I saw a pleasant, bare, cool room and a table with maps upon it. Take a seat and smoke, he said. I've been hunting for you and feared I'd never find you. I tell you, I want your help, Charles. You shall have it, I said. Is it about the Gry? Yes. She's supposed to be carrying rifle ammunition for us. So she is. But under the rifle ammunition, unknown to the people here and to the captain who betrayed us, are between two and three hundred of these quick-firing Poirot guns with a thousand tons of ammunition for them, on which we count for victory. We must have those guns and ammunition belts. Oh, you can't, I said. Her fires are out and she's tied up there in the rogue's walk. Well, we've got to get her to El Puno. Well, that's a bit of a job, I said. I suppose you've seen her. She's got a guard on board. Yes, ten men and a lieutenant. Well, the lieutenant's a slacker, I said. Even so, it's a guard, and she's very near to the naval anchorage. Oh, for the good old days of the cutting out party, I said, when you could scupper the guards and make sail. I don't see what's to be done. Well, something's got to be done, he said. We must get her away before they rummage her hold and find those poirettes. I've got a tug. Do you mean the Tipton Slasher? I asked. Yes, she was for sale. I bought her. Luckily, she has steam up, for a firm in Merule wanted her, and she was going down the coast today, but I stepped in and got her. That is, of course, our agents did. What is her crew? Well, her Liverpool crew. I did hear a word, I said, that her bottom is grassy and that her engines aren't sound. She's a bit grassy, nothing to hurt. Her engines are in good order. Has she got good lines that would hold the gry? Yes, good new lines, or almost new. She can tow the gry if she can get to her. Oh, you're lucky to get such a tug as the slasher, I said, and more than lucky to have a Liverpool crew. Do they know the kind of job expected of them? The captain's under an obligation to our agents, he said. He has some sort of knowledge. He knows at least that he stands to gain a great deal if he gets the Gry to Puno. The others know nothing. Tom, I said, suppose her captain sells you as the Gry's captain sold you. He may, Tom said. He may have already sold us. Or our enemies may have discovered that we've bought her and already taken steps about it. Somehow, I have the feeling that the captain will stick to us. But I tell you, Charles, this place is as full of our enemies as a net is full of holes. Luckily, they aren't awake to war yet, but they're waking every hour and we've no time to waste. It seemed to me that any wide-awake agent would inquire into the purchase of the tug. Then, surely, I thought Secret Service agents would know of Tom's presence there, my heart sank, but I did want to say something to cheer him. Well, I said, if your tugman keeps faith, that's one great asset. Your having the slasher is another very great asset, but I still don't see how you're to scupper ten Santa Barbara naval ratings without having a war with Santa Barbara, which I suppose you wish to avoid. That is the devil of it, he said. That guard. I thought there would only be a couple of watchmen, but we daren't fight the guard. There wouldn't be more than two on deck at two in the morning, but still. You have to scupper them or gag them, or do something to them. They might well give the alarm. Charles, he said, if you were faced with this problem, what would you do to get her? 
Well, I'd try to tempt the guard out of her or make them drunk. How would you get drink to them? By a boat under the bows. A man in her asked me for some only a minute before I saw you. Oh, well, we might drug some rum, perhaps, and drug two or three of them. These people don't take to rum, though, like your own dear countrymen. How would you tempt them out of her? I hadn't thought, I said. Perhaps you could forge an admiralty order? I haven't got one to forge. I don't see how I can get one. I seem to remember that in the French Revolution, they got women to tempt the royalist soldiers. Could we forge a love letter to the lieutenant, making an assignation with him for midnight? That might bring him ashore with his gig's crew. In his absence, the guard might be tempted with drugged rum. Drugging rum's a risky business, he said. What drug and how much of it and how can we get it without a doctor's prescription? Well, I should have thought we could get some knockout drops from some of the saloons in Sailor Town. It is two plans, he said. It isn't simple. It means one plan for the men and another for the officer. As a matter of fact, the lieutenant will be ashore tonight at the president's levy. How do you know? I heard that there is a levy, so I went to the residency and saw on the list that the Tiente Garcia Caldero, that is the fellow, is to be there. He and the gig's crew will be out of her. That leaves six to drug, and three of those no doubt will be teetotalers, old hard-shell water drinkers with their pensions due. Well, I said, let us consider a little further. We've got two things in our favour, the lieutenants to be ashore, and we have, by a miracle, a first-rate tug. The question is how to tempt the guard of six either ashore or into insensibility. What force have you? Force, he said, no force, and wouldn't dare use it if I had it. Whatever happens, Santa Barbara mustn't declare war on us. Well, but what men have you to seize the gray? You'll want someone to steer her, at least. I've got myself, he said, and I think I've got you. Yes, you've got me, but who else? Well, there's Grau, the man who was in the boat with me just now, and his wife, Senora Grau. This is their house, by the way. He has been in our embassy here this last year. You can depend on those two till hell freezes, as your admiral says. And Senora Grau is a sailor. She can steer, yes, and take a quick cast. Well, good, I said. We are four. And the tug hands, who will keep strictly to their jobs as tug hands? Well, okay. Couldn't we drug a pie and some rum? I said, and bring them off to the Grey as a gift from the president, after the gig is taken in the lieutenant. You're all for your drugs, he said, but it will be midnight. Some of them will be turned in, and all will have had their suppers. You can drug all the pies and all the wine in Christendom, but you can't be sure that you'll make the crew eat and drink of them. Then these knockout drops that you speak of, they're very uncertain from what I've heard, and have been known to kill men. And anyhow, I loathe the thought of poison. I do too, I said, but we're considering possible ways of breaking all laws, and poison is one of them. However, let us consider every other way first. I should think we could go aboard at midnight, lure the men at the gangway, there isn't likely to be more than one, into a cabin and lock him in, and then turn the key on the rest, who will probably be asleep. Yes, and suppose we found them all on deck, he objected. Well, we could say we brought orders that the Gry is to shift her berth. Yes, but I've reason to believe, and so has Grau, that they will shift her this afternoon right into the naval harbour. They wouldn't shift her twice in one day. Then you must remember that the President's levy will keep both harbours full of boats almost all night long. Officers will be going in sober and coming back more or less drunk all the time. There'll be a lot of traffic. We shall be under observation. I'm not so sure of that, I said. There'll be thick haze in this harbour tonight. Hmm, I never thought of that, he said. 
Fog on the top of everything. There may not be fog. Who says there'll be fog? Well, I do, and this weather bureau says so. That settles it then, I suppose. The tug wouldn't find her in fog, and even if she did, wouldn't be able to take her out. Well, hang on. If the Liverpool crowd is in the slasher, I said, they could find her in any kind of a fog, if they would consent to try. As for taking her out, if you would trust me, I'd risk it, and do my best. I know you're a pucker pilot, he said, but what chance would you have of taking her out in a fog through a crowded anchorage? A sporting chance, I said, and that's good enough. I suppose it's a yardarm crime, he said, and a yardarm crime won't make you popular with green and silvers. It is piracy, you know, isn't it, to take a ship? We haven't taken her yet, I said. How are we to take her? Yes, he said. How are we to take her? Well, I've suggested that we rush her at midnight, lock the sleepers into their forecastle, and carry her off. And I've objected, he said, that we may find them all on deck, get into conflict with them, insult their flag, and give Santa Barbara a pretext for declaring war. That we have to avoid at all costs. I suppose you would beat the Santa Barbara Navy, I said. Oh, please God, we don't have to try, he answered. They've an army as well as a navy, with fifty heavy howitzers. Wait a moment, I said. Another thing has occurred to me. I've been away for some days, and a lot has taken place here since I went. They've begun to talk of war with you. Have they established a special night harbour guard yet? Uh, there are the usual harbour police, he said. They will take some passing. They've not mounted a special night guard yet, but uh, the devil of it is that they may at any moment. Grau raised that very point. We must try to lift her tonight, or it may be never. Senora Grau came into the room. I was presented to her. I liked her look of calm, resolute beauty. So you still seek a way, she said. Yes, Tom said, and we don't find one. We may get to it by elimination, I said. It can't be done by force, nor by kindness, he said. It will have to be done by craft or luck, I said. I don't see the craft and the luck's out, Tom said. If I were you, Senora Grau said, I would put it all quite out of your minds. Walk out on the front and in the plazas for half an hour and then come back to lunch. Don't try to think of anything. Something may be given. That is very sound advice, I said. Let's take it. So Tom and I walked out and looked again at the harbour. There were the ships in their mooring lines. There was the busy, beautiful harbour, with the gry on the one hand and the slasher on the other. How were we to bring them together was not yet clear. I saw the steam picket boats of the harbour police dashing about on duty. How we could take the gry out of the harbour without challenge from a police boat, I could not imagine. If there were fog, I thought, I could take her out and ignore their challenges. Then a puff of wind would lift the fog, and the police would wireless the forts and the fleet and the forts would shell us till the destroyers caught us, and away we should go all to the mines for a term of hard labour. But I turned again from this depressing thought to the more depressing thought. You can't get the gry off her moorings until you've settled her guard, and how can you settle her guard? She will have at least six hefty seamen on board, up to all the dodges in the service and proof against all the temptations. Well, the more I thought of it, the gloomier I became. We wandered on from the front into the gardens both of us silent and perplexed with the effort to see a way where no way showed. It's just like butting your head against a brick wall in whichever way you turn, Tom said. It's like a tale I once read, I said, of a traveller who came to a wall which he couldn't climb nor get through nor get under. Well, what did he do, Tom said. Well, he tried all the ways and then gave it up and went to sleep, and in the morning it wasn't there. Well, some wall and some world, Tom said. 
As we talked thus, we came out of the gardens into what is called the Place of Liberty. At the northern end of this place is a fine, white stone building, known then as the Naval and Military Club. Over its entrance there was, then, a big, bold bas-relief of the Battle for Independence, in which Almirante Brown fought a Spanish squadron just outside the harbour. Neither one of us thought that we were likely to find inspiration there, but we saw the ships in the bas-relief and, of course, as sailors, we stopped instinctively to look at them and to criticise the cuts of their topsails. On the instant, as we stopped to look, the double doors under the bas-relief were opened outward simultaneously by two servants in white, who held the doors wide, stiffened to attention and saluted. A moment later, the cause of this salute appeared slowly, walking with pomp and some difficulty out of the porch and down the steps. He was a man so swathed in uniform that he looked like a tailor's dummy. He was a biggish, fat man with a fat grey face and grey hair. On his head he wore a big, black, plush tricorn, heavy with gold lace. He wore a naval uniform, based perhaps on what had been English practice thirty years before, but bottle green in colour, but only wherever there was no gold lace. I knew how costly gold lace is, from having had to ship some in green and silvers. This man wore so much that he had only to be melted down to pay the national debt. He was stiff with it. Epaulets, stock, agulets, rank stripes, pipings, cuff and skirt flaps and the seams of his trousers. His sword seemed to be of solid gold. He had even a kind of gold spat which came down over each shoe and a gold trouser strap beneath the shoe. He walked stiffly and from instinct, guessing that he must be a kind of super admiral, we both saluted him, which Gracie returned with pomp. He walked slowly across the plaza to the Admiralty. On his way, about one third of the men whom he passed stiffened to attention and saluted. I watched him till the naval ratings had closed the Admiralty doors upon him. Who is that? I asked. A saviour of his country? Port Admiral here, Tom answered. Ribiera y Pelote, an old family. They grow sugar, I believe, out to the north somewhere. I did not answer for a few minutes. Then at last I said, Tom, come to some quiet place with me where we can talk. I believe that I know how we can take the gry. Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly. And remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube and the Mariner podcast. And of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.